I'm going to ask Brian Stewart, one of our elders, to come and lead us in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you again have blessed us with a full house. Lord, we are here for you. It's not about us and our needs right now. This is a time of worship to you. So, Father, my prayer is that you open up our hearts and our minds to pour out that precious, precious relationship that we have with you. And, Lord, may you be glorified by that and all that takes place here today. Lord, as Phil presents the message that you have given him, I pray that the the power of your word and the, the words that you have given him personally, Lord, will touch us in such a way that it will change our lives. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough that you have given us your word to guide us, to direct us, and to protect us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. I really enjoy studying the life of the Apostle Peter in the Bible. find a lot of connectivity with him and a lot of commonality that allows me to look closely at his life, beginning with simple things like this. Peter was a fisherman. I like to fish. There's just a a similarity there, and I, I really like that about him. Peter, in his youth, was somewhat impetuous and reactionary. Now, in the early days of following Jesus, that impetuousness and reactionary nature reared its head. I have some of the same tendencies myself. When I was younger and I saw those things that would rise up, I would look at Peter's life and recognize that there's a way to grow through them. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You can use that fruit of the Spirit to help govern and at times quench that impetuousness, that reactionary nature. And Peter teaches us that. He shows that to us. Peter became a preacher. I, I really connect with that part of his story. Not that I would ever assume to say that I am a preacher along the lines of the Apostle Peter. Not at all, but there's a connection between me and him just because of occupation. So I really like that. Then there's another area that we connect in that's a little harder to find in Scripture, and and maybe you weren't even aware of it, but I don't believe Peter was a morning person, and neither am I. Now, there's reasons that I don't believe that Peter was a morning person, and there are reasons that I know I'm not. I will be 50 years old in just a few weeks. I know that through a half a century of history, I am not a morning person. I have tried to reverse that. I have tried to change it. Tina and I will have been married for 29 years in a few weeks. The entire time we have been married, I have tried to change that. Every year I'll say to her, I'm going to turn over a new leaf this year and I am going to become a morning person. I'm going to get up early. This is ah, it's going to be great. I'm going to charge into the day. And for 29 years, I have failed. If you don't believe me, talk to her. There are only a few weeks out of the year where I really embrace mornings. Of course, that would be during hunting season. The rest of the year, I dread them. I hate my alarm clock. I'm not exaggerating the sentiment. I hate my alarm clock. I have thrown them across the room. I have broken a number of them. I have nearly lost my salvation when they have gone off in the morning. I hate alarm clocks. And I feel almost the same way about mornings. Now, I I like the night. I do some of my best work at night. I can stay up late with no problem at all. I can continue working well into the darkness. That is no problem for me at all. And it has always been that way. And I think Peter has some of the exact same tendencies. Let me show you why I believe that. I'm going to take you to the Gospel of Luke first. We'll end up in the Gospel of John, but let's go to Luke first. Luke chapter 5. 
starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now listen, verse 5, and Simon answered, Master... We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now let's go back to verse 5. Just listen again. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now we can read between the lines a little bit there. And in fact, we should. They were fishing at night on the Sea of Galilee. That's when the best fishing was. That's when they caught the most. So all of the fishermen in that region knew that you put your boats out when the sun goes down and you fish till the sun comes up. But then you put your boats away and you go to bed. That was their whole pattern. Now Jesus had come to Peter and said, hey, I need to borrow your boat. Will you row me out there a little ways so that I can use it as a platform in order to teach all these people? And you can imagine Peter thinking, yeah, be glad to. Really just wanted to go to bed, but I'll take you back out there. So he rowed the boat back out, and Jesus taught from it. But then Jesus took it up a notch and said, let's go fishing. And Peter said, I'd rather not. We fished all night. We didn't catch anything. And Jesus said, no, let's go fishing. And he said, all right, Lord, if you want to go fishing, we'll go fishing. But I am exhausted. And they took the boat out. They dropped the net, and you heard what happened. They caught a whole bunch of fish. Their net was enclosed with fish. That was a great haul. I am sure at that point, he no longer thought about going to bed. Peter was energized, just had a slammer of a day on the water. But he was a night person, not a morning person, not at all. There are other places in scripture that'll teach us that same thing. Later on in the gospel of John, we'll see that he was fishing all night long. We know that when Peter goes to the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, he can't stay awake. Jesus just wants him to stay awake while he goes out and prays. Pray with me, he says. But Peter, James, and John can't stay awake. All three of them were fishermen, and they fished at night. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have spent time around people that work the graveyard shift? And how many of you have seen people that work the graveyard shift fall asleep at the drop of a hat? Or swing shift. How many of you have been around people that work swing shift? And how many of you have seen people that work swing shift fall asleep at the drop of a hat? It's because their sleep schedules are messed up. That's why they do that. And that was Peter. Peter could fall asleep without even thinking about it because his sleep patterns were messed up. I might offer to you that the Lord never intended anybody to get out of bed before 9 a.m. That's the way God wanted it to be. And these guys had to work all night long. That was just their pattern. Now, there's something else that I've discovered about Peter in my study of his life. I think he hated roosters. 
I think he hated roosters long before Jesus ever brought one into his life. But I think he hated roosters. When Peter was going to bed, the roosters were crowing. You ever tried to stay asleep through a rooster? It's terrible. Some of you know what it's like to try to fall back asleep when the rooster starts crowing. That's terrible. Me not being a morning person, I have considered poultry homicide a number of different times. I want to live in a subdivision where there are covenants preventing roosters because they are just that terrible. But in Peter's world, Peter had to try to go to bed when the roosters were crowing. So I think he hated them. And then Jesus introduced him to a rooster that I think made him hate him even more. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It begins with a prophecy from the Lord himself. We're still in the Gospel of Luke. Let's stay there, but go to the 22nd chapter. Luke 22, verse 31. This is Jesus' prophecy. Simon, Simon, which could also be Peter. That's the same name. Peter, Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. There's the introduction of the rooster. Peter just heard something that that probably took him a little off guard, but maybe, just maybe, if I'm right in all of this, he's thinking, oh, no. A rooster? I have tried my whole life to stay away from those stinking things. What do you mean a a rooster is going to crow, and I will have denied you three times? It does not take very long. In fact, only a few short hours before he understands. His first failure is found in John chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now that is the first denial, the first fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave. Remember, Jesus told Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. There's number one. Now take a look at number two and number three. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And then listen, and at once a rooster crowed. There's the rooster. It's early in the morning. Jesus has been arrested and that rooster crowed. Jesus would be led to the cross after that. Peter would be left with three failures hanging over his head. Three failures. That was Friday morning. I want you to imagine Saturday morning. The rooster crowed again. When that rooster crowed, oh my word. You can't imagine how he woke up then. Left with his three failures and the visions of Jesus dying on the cross. It had to be terrible. Absolutely terrible. 
when that rooster started crowing that morning, you can imagine that, that Peter didn't want to get out of bed, but he had no choice. Awake and left alone with his own thoughts, that rooster brought this nighttime fisherman right out of a fitful night's sleep. Maybe, just maybe, if you're like me, you wonder what he looked like when the rooster crowed that second morning, and even the third on Sunday morning before the resurrection. This nighttime fisherman, non-morning person might have looked just like this. Take a look. (laughs) That could have been it. You can see all of the emotion on Bugs Bunny's face. And that's probably how Peter felt just as he was listening to that rooster. He is defeated, undone, depressed, discouraged, hopeless, completely hopeless. And that's exactly how Bugs looks. You might have felt that way yourself. Going through some different things in life, you may have found yourself thinking, everything is hopeless. You might even find yourself at a place where your sin has so defined you like Peter did that you knew it was hopeless. There was no way for God to forgive you. There was no way to make your way through it. Well, here's what I want you to know this morning. Things are not hopeless. Not at all. In fact, there is great hope. And all we have to do is follow Peter through the next few hours to find it. And I want to take you through those hours this morning. Beginning with a promise found tucked away in the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, the 10th verse. We're going to put it up on the screen so you can see it, but I really want to encourage you to find it in your own Bibles so that you can highlight it, underline it, memorize it. This is a verse of Scripture that bears exploration. We should spend a lot of time with it and remind ourselves of the truth of it over and over and over again. Listen to how the Bible says this. This is Jesus talking, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, I believe so strongly in this verse that I want us to say it together a couple of times because ultimately, I want you to memorize it. Let's say it together. Just read with me. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, let's read it with a little bit of passion together. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, let's try it like we mean it. Here we go. Last time. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now we're going to get to that beautiful promise of an abundant life in just a minute. But we have to start with the warning at the top because the warning matters. Now here it is. Just look at it for yourself. The thief, which is Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I want to take that part of this verse and put it under a microscope for just a minute. It would have been very easy for Jesus to have said, the thief comes only to steal. Or he could have said, the thief comes only to kill. Or he could have said, the thief comes only to destroy. He could have chosen just one of those words and captured the entire essence of what he is talking about. But he didn't. He used all three of them, showing us, in essence, a pattern. And that pattern is at work all the time. This is the way Satan does it. This is the way the thief works. Follow me through it. The thief comes only to steal. 
to steal what? Well, in my estimation, because these blanks are not filled in by God, we have to fill them in ourselves. In my estimation, we could say the thief comes only to steal your joy and to kill. To kill what? If this isn't a final word, which means to kill us, then what did he come to kill? If he came to steal our joy, then it would make sense as we study scripture that he then came to kill our spirit, to break us to completely break us. In order to do that, he's got to take from us our joy first. So he came to steal our joy that he might kill our spirit so that ultimately he could destroy. Now again, this is one of those words that doesn't carry with it the finality of our lives. So what did he come to destroy? Our souls. So he came to steal our joy that he might completely break us by killing our spirit so that he could destroy our souls. And that's exactly what he wants to do. That is his whole plan and his whole purpose. Because to destroy your soul keeps you away from God through his son. So he always follows the exact same pattern. Jesus says the thief came to steal, destroy, and kill. Some translations of the Bible will reverse those words, but the pattern remains the same. It begins with him killing our joy that he might steal our spirit and destroy our soul. That is always the pattern. It is always the way he works. In Peter's particular situation, Satan actually had to come, the thief actually had to come to Jesus and ask for permission to do that. Let that sink in for just a second. Satan had to come and ask for permission to do that. It's found back in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Listen to this again. Simon, Simon, or Peter, Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What an interesting statement. What an interesting metaphor. Peter, Satan has asked to have access to your life that he might sift you like wheat. Now, why would Satan want to sift Peter like wheat? For only one purpose. In modern terminology, we might say it like this. Peter, Satan has asked to run you through the combine. And at the end of it, he is expecting to blow you out the back with all of the chaff, everything that is worthless, nothing but the stocks and the holes. You'll be blown out the back and left for rubbish. That's it. That's what he thinks is going to happen. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to put you through some really difficult moments. Because he doesn't think you're going to stand up to it. But listen to what Jesus says, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The theology of that verse is very, very deep. The theology of that verse has some incredible teaching for us. Beginning right here. Pay close attention. Your sin is not failure in God's eyes. Your sin, our sin, only becomes failure in our eyes. When Jesus was speaking to Peter, he spoke of failure, but it was not sin failure, it was faith failure. Failure only happens in the eyes of the Lord when our sin causes us to walk away from our faith. When our stumbles cause us to leave the Lord, that is failure. 
The reason that sin is not failure in the eyes of God or in the eyes of Jesus, His Son, is simple. It's because of the cross. He covered your sin with His blood. He provided for our sin through grace. Now, He provided a means of us growing through it in sanctification so that we wouldn't let it continue to define us, but it is not a fatal failure. Not at all. Sin is a stumble. Sin is a a part of life. You may think that because you have become a Christian, you're never going to sin again. Well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're wrong. You are. And God has provided for that through His blood, through grace, and through mercy. The only failure is if you walk away from the Lord because of it. So Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus already knew what was going to happen. He already knew the way this whole story would play out. And he said, but when you have come back, when you have turned again, when you get through that, I've prayed that your faith may not fail and you will strengthen your brothers. Here's what he was saying. I have granted access to the enemy because I know your heart. I have given him permission to sift you as wheat because I know your heart. And here's what he knew. In fact, I I don't even want to share it with you. I want the Bible to speak to it. So go with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Job. Job chapter 23. Beautiful verse of scripture here as well. One that bears memorizing. Job chapter 23. If you're not positive how to find the book of Job, look for the book of Job and you'll be pretty close. It's spelled exactly the same. It's right before the book of Psalms. So go to Psalms, turn left, you'll be in the book of Job that looks like Job. Job 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Isn't that a great verse? But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Jesus granted access to the enemy, to Peter's life and to his heart, because he knew that after he had been tried and tested, he would come out as gold. Some translations actually say, come forth as gold. I really like the way that sounds. I will come forth as gold. It means that that in my heart, I have what it takes to make my way through all of this, through every bit of it. I've got it. And Jesus knew that. The day after the crucifixion, it could easily be said that Peter didn't feel like he came forth as gold. He felt a lot more like lead. Some of us have felt the same way. As we have gone through the trials, as we have gone through the testing and the tempting that the enemy throws our way, on the backside of that, oftentimes we feel like lead. But the Lord only allows that to happen when he knows that we will come forth as gold. And the prayer that Jesus offered for Peter is the same one that he prays for us. That when we have gone through those things, when we return, he prays that our faith will not fail. And somewhere in there, we will never allow ourselves to believe that there is no grace for us, or there is no mercy for us, or there is no second chance for us, or there is no way through our sin and our stumbles. His prayer is that our faith will not fail. But here we are just a few hours removed from the crucifixion. The rooster's crowing. 
And Peter's looking like this. Let's put that picture of Bugs Bunny back up, Chelsea. He's looking just like that. That doesn't look very golden, does it? It doesn't look victorious. It doesn't look abundant. It doesn't look like he is experiencing what Jesus had promised. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 10, the promise after the warning. In fact, Bugs looks to have the face of a person that has been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. That's exactly what it looks like. And it should. Peter should have had PTSD. You've heard those initials and you've heard post-traumatic stress disorder. Peter should have had it. And if you don't understand why I say that, look at the definition of PTSD as Mayo Clinic would define it. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is a mental health condition that's triggered by a terrifying event, the cross, either experiencing it or witnessing it. Symptoms may include flashbacks, nightmares, and severe anxiety, as well as uncontrollable thoughts about the event. That's post-traumatic stress disorder. And certainly Peter should have had it simply by witnessing the trauma of the cross. But wrapped around that trauma was his own failure. He might describe it this way. I am a three-time loser that didn't stand up for him. And he died that horrendous death. And I was watching, albeit from afar, I was watching and I saw it. And I can't get it out of my mind. And there's nightmares and there's anxiety. And there is defeat, and there is hopelessness. And that's what post-traumatic stress disorder brings into people's lives. In our culture today, PTSD is diagnosed on a regular basis, and it is a very real disorder. Veterans of foreign wars deal with PTSD, particularly combat vets, deal with post-traumatic stress disorder because of the things they have seen, the things that they have witnessed. Firefighters and police officers deal with PTSD on a regular basis because of the things they have seen, the things that they have witnessed, the images that they cannot get out of their mind, the nightmares that come back, and the anxiety that is attached to it, not to mention the uncontrollable thoughts. Victims of childhood abuse deal with PTSD. Victims of rape and molestation deal with PTSD. People that witness car wrecks firsthand deal with PTSD. Survivor's guilt can lead to PTSD if there is great trauma that surrounds it. For the longest time, the problem with post-traumatic stress disorder was this. There were no answers for it. Nobody knew what to do to help people that had been diagnosed with PTSD. Medicine says, we're going to medicate the problem. We're going to do everything that we can to just kind of baseline the emotions in the brain so that a person can make their way through day-to-day life. But oftentimes, the medications have been worse than the symptoms of the disorder itself. Counselors have worked to try to talk people through PTSD, and though they might have had some success, they have still struggled 50, 60 years after PTSD became something that that modern medicine was acknowledging. People had said, we don't know what to do to help. But recently, there is a research group that has found a way through. They are called the Post-Traumatic Growth Research Group. They've been around for about 10 years, 
And they have discovered a way to help people through the very things that Peter was dealing with. And I want you to see their definition of what they have discovered. Post-traumatic growth. It is positive change experienced as a result of the struggle with a major life crisis or a traumatic event. Although we coined the term post-traumatic growth, the idea that human beings can be changed by their encounters with life challenges, sometimes in radically positive ways, is not new. Now that's the first paragraph on their website, the first paragraph that introduces their research. And they are not a Christian group, though it is interesting where they have found truth. Take a look. The theme is present in ancient spiritual and religious traditions, literature and philosophy. What is reasonably new is the systematic study of this phenomenon by psychologists, social workers, counselors, and scholars in other traditions of clinical practice and scientific investigation. Here's what they have discovered. Are you ready for this? And they can't say it because they're a secular group. The answer is found in the Bible. The answer is found in relationship with Jesus Christ. They can't say that. Though there are parts, even on their website, where they are directing people to the answers found in Scripture and the answers found in relationship with Jesus Christ. People that have been left with a somewhat hopeless diagnosis have found a way through. And this is great news. Though it isn't new, it has been around for 2,000 years. All people had to do was pay attention Peter seems to be the pioneer of post-traumatic growth. He is one of the first people that we find in Scripture that has received the answers that so many people need, and this is beyond exciting. It only shows up in one place in the Bible. It's found in the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter. Why don't you go there with me? Beautiful part of his story. Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. John puts this story in for a really specific 
reason. Matthew doesn't put it there. Matthew leaves us with Peter at the betrayal. He leaves us with the rooster. Mark leaves us in the same place. Luke gets us a little bit closer to what we're about to see, but he leaves us with Peter at the empty tomb, marveling and wondering, the Bible says. But John goes on to give us this part of the story, the post-traumatic growth, so that we could see what it leads to, which is the abundant life that Jesus promised. If you were to read through his entire gospel from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 20, it would make sense that there would be a final period at the end of chapter 20 after he appears to doubting Thomas. But that's not where this ends. He goes on to include this so that we could see the rest of the story with Peter. And I'm glad he does. Because listen to what happens next. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you wherever you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That's post-traumatic growth. Here's how we know that. The research group has determined that there are five things that happen in a person's life when they move from post-traumatic stress disorder all the way through to post-traumatic growth. Look at these five things. They will develop a sense of new opportunities. There will be a change in relationships, an increased sense of one's own strengths, a greater appreciation for life itself, and a deepening in your spiritual life. John chapter 21, in those last verses that we just read, contain all five. Peter developed a new sense of opportunities, feed my sheep. There was a change in relationship evidenced in the love conversation that was happening between Jesus and Peter. Do you love me, Peter? Don't worry about the past. Do you love me, Peter? Don't worry about the rooster. Do you love me, Peter? Don't worry about those three failures. They don't matter. What matters is us moving forward, change in relationship, an increased sense in one's own strengths, It is interesting that Jesus would detail for Peter how he was going to be living towards the end of his life. In essence, he was saying, just because we're having this conversation doesn't mean that it's going to be smooth sailing from this point forward. You're still going to have some struggles, but you're strong enough to handle it. You will come forth as gold. A greater appreciation for life itself The whole Bugs Bunny thing disappears from this point forward. When we get into the book of Acts, we don't ever hear Peter hating the rooster. We don't ever hear the rooster crow again. That's no longer an issue for him. Life has taken a turn. We also don't hear about Peter fishing anymore. 
That's when Peter becomes a preacher. That's when he accepts this new responsibility in his life. Not that there is anything inherently wrong with fishing. Pay attention to the fact that Jesus met him there the first time when he was fishing. And when he needed to find him again and change his life, he met him back there on the water fishing. There's nothing inherently wrong with fishing, Stevie. Nothing. You're okay. And a deepening of spiritual life. From this point forward, his life was defined completely different than it ever had been again. Now, here's the cool thing. All of it is tied together. Post-traumatic growth is tied together with one question and one command. The question, do you love me? That's the question. And it is so important that Jesus would ask it three times. Do you love me? Do you completely love me? In essence, saying to Peter, do you trust me? Do you love me enough to trust me. Lord, you know that I love you. And then he followed it with the command. Then follow me. Feed my sheep. That's the command. That was it. And that is still the path through. When people are introducing folks that have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and they want to get them to the place of post-traumatic growth, it begins in saying, let me tell you about Jesus Christ so that they can get to a place where they can answer the question, do you love him? And do you trust him? If you do, then follow him. Do what he says. He can lead you out. Just like he did with Peter. Because Jesus can promise, here they are again, these five things. A new sense of opportunities. Change in relationships. An increased sense of one's own strengths. A greater appreciation for life itself. And a deepening in your spiritual life. That's post-traumatic growth. That's what it looks like. We will all face traumatic situations. Every one of us. They may be different. Your trauma is going to be different than mine. Your trauma is going to be different than some of those folks that we talked about earlier, but it's your trauma. And when you witness it, it can leave you disordered. And it can leave you stuck in the trauma itself. You have a choice that you have to make when you face those things. And it's the same choice everybody has to make. Will I stay stuck here or will I move on? And if I'm going to move past the trauma, I'm going to need the Lord to do it. I'm going to need Jesus' help to do it. And that's how I can progress through these things. That's the way it works. I will choose Jesus. And when we do, here's what happens. Back in John chapter 10, verse 10, in case you have forgotten, and I hope you haven't, we'll put it back up on the screen. Here's John 10, verse 10. Take a look at it again. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. You will discover the abundance of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people wonder what that is. Modern preachers today, particularly on TV, will offer things like this. The abundance of Jesus Christ is health and wealth. You'll never get sick and you'll be rich. That's a health and wealth, prosperity gospel, we teach it, or we call it. The Bible does not promise that. In fact, Jesus would say, in this world, you will have trouble. That's, that's not health and wealth. But take heart, I have overcome the world, he says. The abundant life that Jesus offers is found in Galatians chapter 5. And here's the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the list. 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. The Bible goes on in Galatians chapter 5 to say, against these things there is no law. Nothing that could take them back. That's the abundant life of Jesus Christ. And when we make our way through the traumas that might hold us back, when we make our way through the stumbles and the sin that could define us forever, and we get into Jesus Christ, we will discover this, the abundant life that Jesus offers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Somebody say amen. Amen. That's the good news. That's what's offered to us. Worship team is going to make their way up here. and While they do, I just want to leave you with a a thought from a fellow named John Ortberg. John's a wonderful preacher, wonderful author. He says this, God is not at work to produce the circumstances that you want. Now, that's the first part of this. God is not at work to produce the circumstances that you want. God is at work, here's the second part, God is at work in the circumstances to produce the you that he wants. Do you see the difference? God is not at work in, to produce circumstances that you want. He is at work in circumstances to produce the you that he wants. That's the difference. And sometimes we're going to go through some difficulties to get there. Some of them can be quite traumatic. But God is on the other side. Make your way to him.